you are staying in here, then I'll go ahead and invite you to turn to the book of Job. We're in Job 42, and today is the last sermon in the book of Job. Some of you are happy, some of you are not happy. Um, this is the last sermon in the book of Job. Uh, one of the things we said in the very beginning as we started this series, it's probably one of the most well-known books in the Bible. It seems that there are people from all different backgrounds and beliefs that they know something about this book. It's a book that challenges our understanding of God and what it means to live the Christian life. So we titled, uh, we titled the series of Job, Trusting God in the Darkness. And as we preach through this book, we've seen Job, a God-fearing man, go through trials. He's lost his health, he's lost his wealth, he's lost his family, his suffering was intense. He truly experienced what could be called the suffering of the dark nights of the soul. And now we come to the end. We're in chapter 42, and we're at the end, and it ends pretty abruptly, and it almost sounds like a fairy tale, and they all lived happily ever after. You can almost just put that at the end. And so as we look at, our fi at the final text today, um, what I want to do is make concluding remarks. I want to try to connect themes that we see in the book of Job to all of Scripture. And there's really three main questions uh, that I hope just to have answered today. Number one, what do we learn about Job in the Christian life? Number two, what do we learn about God? Number three, how does the book of Job point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ? So I, I want us to see those three things. And, and my hope in, in doing that is that we would understand that God's grace is abundantly sufficient for us to live the Christian life to the end. The entirety of the Christian life can be lived by God's grace. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to stand, and we're going to read chapter 42, verses 7 through 17, right to the very end of the book. We stand each week as we read God's Word as a reminder that this Word comes to us from God, inspired by God with His full authority. 42, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will, pr for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him. For all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the names, the name of his first daughter, Jemimiah, and the name of his second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapak, and in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers, 
And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Let me pray. Father, Father, I just I thank you for, for this book, the book of Job. Lord, there is confusing parts, there's mysterious parts, there's tensions that we experience in this book. But God, you give an abundance of grace in this book that we would see you. We would see you in your rule and your power and your grace and your mercy. And how, God, all things exist in and under your rule. And as Job said in 42, to no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I pray that we know that and we see that. And Lord, today as we look at this text and kind of the entire book of Job, give us wisdom this morning. Give us grace that we would understand your book. Lord, I thank you for the songs that we have sung that have already just perfectly spoken about the truths that we see in your word. And I pray that those words and this word that we now look at today, that by your grace, God, you would cement into our hearts that we would know you and love you. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, so to answer the qu first question, what do we learn about Job in the Christian life? That's where we're going to start. And, and I want us just to see Job is a picture of a true believer. It's important that we know that. So I just want to want to really quick show how is it that we know he's a believer. And so in Job chapter 1 verse 1, so all the way uh, in the very beginning of the book, we read, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. From the very beginning of the book, Job is said to be a very righteous, God-fearing man. We then see that Job is presented as a priest who regularly offers sacrifices and prays for his family. We then see in chapter 1 that he's presented like a king, and his great wealth is made known. We see what a large family he has. Job is truly a picture of a godly man who experiences the very blessings of God. Now we, we come to the other end of the book, and, and what we see, like in Job 42, 7, Job is said to be right, and his friends are wrong. Just as we read in the beginning, he's blameless and upright, so he continues to be blameless and upright. In the beginning of the book, he is shown to be like a priest. At the end of the book, he is a priest who intercedes for his friends in prayers that they would be forgiven. And then like a king, we are told of all of his great riches and the great family in which God has blessed him with. So the very bookends are very, very similar. In chapter 1, verse 8, we are told Job is a servant of God. And now here in verses 7 through 8, four times we're told Job is a servant of God. That's a huge title that is given to this man because the patriarchs and, and key believers throughout the Old Testament are said to be servants of God, ultimately culminating in the book of Isaiah, where we're told there is a suffering servant, one who will come, pointing us to Jesus Christ, the true servant of God. We are told that it is precisely because of Job's faith that God brings Job up to Satan that he would go through all of these trials. It's because he's a believer 
that we have the book of Job. It's because he's a believer, he goes through these trials. And so why is it important that we know that he is a believer? Because Job teaches us very important things about the Christian life. And one thing that I want us to see today is that real faith perseveres. I just want us to see that. It's one of the key truths that were in the book of Job. Real faith perseveres. In the New Testament, the book of James refers to Job. And James says, we're to look at Job as an example of steadfast faith. So James, New Testament writer, inspired by the Spirit, looking back on the book of Job, says, let me tell you how to understand this man. Example of steadfast faith. In fact, let me read James chapter 5, verse 11. This is how James says it. Behold, we consider those blessed to remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. After Job lost his family and his health, his wife advised him, curse God and die. And we, we talked about probably why she said that and what that looked like back then. But listen to what Job's response is. Job chapter 2, verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And just real quick, if you come back here and, and you look here in, uh, in Job 42, we see that it is God who is said to have brought all these trials upon Job. Do not miss that. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But God is the one who stands as the authority, the ruler of all the universe, who ultimately brought all these trials upon Job. And we see here in chapter 2, verse 10, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now, if you've been with us throughout the series, you might say, but wait a minute. You're telling me Job persevered and he was blameless and upright, but didn't he say wrong things? Job didn't always say what is right. After all, last week, Job 42, 6, he did repent. We do not live perfect lives, but we do live persevering lives. I hope you see that. We do not live perfect lives, but we do live persevering lives and real faith perseveres and Job wrestled with God as a believer and so one thing we need to understand I want to clarify when we look at the book of Job the book of Job is not primarily or even necessarily a book about why there is evil in the world although to some degree it speaks about it and there are some implications rather the book of Job tells us why a believer might suffer it's key to understand that a lot of times we read thinking, this book's going to tell me why there's suffering in the world. No, but it will tell us why a believer might suffer. And it tells us how a believer is to respond to trials and suffering is that we persevere. In Job's faith, or in Job's wrestling, we learn that suffering and trials are not always the result of our own personal sin. You need to know that. Some of you, I've, I've had... Strangely, many conversations about just trials this morning, um, whether um, there's housing issues, whether there's medical issues, whether there are just some emotional things that we're going through. There's a lot of things just in this room that you are going through today. And there are times we go through trials because of our sins. 
There are times. There are many times as Christians we go through trials and it's not necessarily a direct response to the sin, to any sin that we have done. This is where Job's friends were wrong. They condemned Job because they believed in an impersonal God who dealt with wrongdoings in a mechanical karma-like fashion. They said, Job, you've suffered because of secret sin in your life and God has exposed it. That's not why he suffered. The whole point throughout the book is that Job did not suffer because of any personal sin in his life. Now, suffering exposed sin, that's different. We've talked about that in the past. The sufferings he endured were not in response to sin in his life. So why does Job suffer? Job suffered to prove that his faith was real, Satan was wrong, and to display the supreme worth of God. That's why he suffered. His faith was real, Satan is wrong, and the supreme worth of God. Back in chapter one, Satan said, the only reason God, or the only reason Job worships you, God, is because you gave him all of these things. Satan accused Job of believing in a prosperity gospel. Who wouldn't believe in God? If you gave me all of these riches and a large family and perfect health, I'd believe in you too. So what did God do? Why don't we just take all of that away? And let's see what Job does. And how does Job respond? He worships God. He worships God. God is worthy of all worship, whether our bank accounts are full or they're empty, whether we are sick or whether we are healthy. The book of Job is a death blow to the prosperity gospel. It's a death blow to it. The premise of Satan is that We as believers only love God for what he gives us. We want his gifts, but we don't actually want God. And what we see in the book of Job is that when everything is moved, Job says, I want God. Job's faith shined with great brightness and intensity because of his sufferings. And guess what? We will suffer for very similar reasons. I hope you know that. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Listen to these words. Peter says, In this rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see it? Like, like just, we, we can just rephrase Peter is saying, when, you're, when your faith is tested, Satan is wrong. Your faith is proven right, and God is shown to be worthy of all glory and honor. It's very much what we see in the book of Job. As gold is purified by fire, so our faith is purified by trials. All throughout the New Testament, we are called persevere, persevere, persevere. The entire book of Hebrews, when we were in Hebrews, was persevere, persevere. In fact, we are told so many times that trials are a normal part of the Christian life and that we are to endure them. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Do you get that? Don't be surprised. We, we say... 
we believe in the inerrancy and the authority of God. Inerrancy, there's no errors in God's word. The authority that is right. And it has the right to speak into all aspects of our life. But if that is true, and we know that, and we read our Bibles, and we read verses like chapter 4, verse 12 of 1 Peter, do not be surprised when you endure fiery trials, then why are we surprised when trials come? If you believe in the inerrancy and the authority of God, then why are we surprised? Good works, faith in Jesus, Bible reading, church attendance, they do not make us immune to suffering. We know this. Probably everyone here knows most of Psalm 23. We might not be able to quote it verbatim, but you all know verse 4. Do I walk through the valley of the shadow of darkness? And yet when we walk through the valley of the shadow of darkness, we're surprised. Where's God? Did he abandon me? Did he leave me? What just happened? I thought I went to church and I read my Bible. Why am I in trials right now? Do not be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. Almost every book in the New Testament speaks of Christians enduring trials. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You hear those words? Jesus said, take up your cross. I mean, does the Christian life sound like sunshine, sun, sunshine uh, puppy dogs and sunflowers? I mean, he says, take your cross. Follow me. And yet then we're surprised when trials come our way and maybe God's failed us at that time. And in every book, Jesus himself says, take up your cross and follow me. So why are we surprised? Now you might say, okay, if the Christian life is full of trials, then why be a Christian? Like, I don't want that. Can God really expect us to persevere in trials? I mean, we read the book of Job, and we, we would say things like this. If I was to lose my family, there's no way I'm staying in the faith. If I had to bury 10 children, and you want me to still believe in God, how? How are we to do that? How are we to endure? And that's where we learn many things also in the book of Job about God. That God's grace is sufficient. I want to read again from, from James chapter 5. Again, James, inspired in the New Testament, looking back at the book of Job, he tells us how to think about it. And he says in chapter 5, verse 11, Beloved, we, we, or behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. So Job is an example of perseverance, of steadfastness. When trials come, we endure. God has not failed us. We endure and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James looks, looks at the book of Job and says, man, we see compassion and mercy in God in the book of Job. And I want you to think about it. How did Job remain steadfast? How did Job, when he gets to chapter 2, verse 10, and his wife says, curse God and die, and some of us would say, yes. And he says, no. How does he do that? 
How did Job remain steadfast? Was he built different? I mean, you think about it. Was he just better than us? Just as the book of Job is not necessarily about all suffering, so neither the book of Job is primarily about Job. You have to know it leads us to God. If you notice, it's after God's speeches. It's at the end of the book. Job is questioned and questioned and questioned, and then God speaks, and his speeches are about his rule and his power and about ostriches and donkeys and lions and birds and the rising of the sun and where he keeps snow and hell and the leviathans and behemoths. It's exactly what we all need to hear, right? And it's at that moment that then Job stops arguing, stops speaking, and he says, I have spoken of things way too wonderfully than that I understand. And he repents of his sins at that moment. When he encounters God, his soul is brought to peace. Job's perseverance has nothing to do with Job and his strength and everything to do with God's grace. The grace that saves us is the grace that sustains us. When you believe in Jesus, you're united to Christ. You're adopted into God's family and you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Real faith perseveres because God's grace is sufficient. That's what we see in the book of Job. His compassion and his mercies are abundant. So I want to give you three passages, and I chose three very well-known New Testament passages that all speak about God's grace and how it helps us to persevere. And I wanted to choose familiar ones because sometimes they're so familiar that we, we almost miss the beauty in them. So Philippians 4, 12 through 13. Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Why can Paul endure being brought low? How is it that Paul continues to trust in Christ when he's hungry, when he's beaten, when he is plethora of needs. Paul's not built different than you and me. He has flesh and blood. He wrestles with sins and fears just like you and I do. So how does Paul endure suffering? Notice what it says in verse 13. Through him who strengthens me. It has nothing to do with Paul. He's no stronger than you or me. So I know sometimes when we read the New Testament and we go, man, but the apostle Paul, he was built different. I mean, like, we just don't respond like that. No, it's God's grace in him that strengthens him. God strengthens Paul. Paul can do all things because of the sustaining grace of God's strength. That's why he perseveres. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Many of you know this one. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So why can we endure trials? Whatever comes our way, why can we endure? Because God is faithful. Because God is faithful. 
And with every temptation that comes your way, he provides the way of escape. And how do we escape? The grace God gives us is not for the disappearance of a trial, but for the endurance of a trial. God's grace is enduring grace. Philippians, he strengthens us. First, or Philippians, he strengthens us. First Corinthians, he gives us enduring grace. Romans 8, 28 to 30. You all know this one. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So in the book of Job, we learn that God is in control of every aspect of of creation. We see that Satan is a dog on a leash. He's only able to do and go as far as what God allows him to do. In chapters 40 and 41, however great the behemoth is, however great and powerful Leviathan is, God is greater. There is nothing outside of God's rule. There's nothing that rivals God's rule, that nothing that, overcame, that can overcome God's rule. Or as Job said in Job 42 too, no purpose of God's can be thwarted. It's because of this truth that we come to Romans 8, 28, and we read, for those who know God, the believer, all things work together for good. Why? Because God's in control of everything. God is in control of everything. If you're a believer, then everything God brings into your life is for your ultimate good. And what is that good? Verse 29, that you'd be conformed to the image of Jesus and spend eternity with him in glory. Because God is supremely sovereign and righteous, you can know that if God takes everything from you, your health, your family, your possessions, your friends, your everything, that somehow it's for your eternal joy and good. Now we, like Job, we want to go, How? How is it good? How can God use these evils for good? The Bible doesn't answer all those questions. God did not see fit to answer every question that we have. But what the Bible does is continually reveal to us the goodness, the power, the rule, and the grace of our God so we can confidently trust in him when surrounded by darkness. We're told these truths. He works them for our good. And we see his character all throughout the Bible on how he can do it and why he can do it. But how do all these trials end up for our good? The Bible doesn't actually speak into that. Listen, these verses, what we read in Philippians, Corinthians, and Romans, and we could list a whole bunch more, they do not belong simply on your cute coffee mugs in your cupboards. They belong in your heart. Like you need to know they belong in your heart. These passages are meant to strengthen your faith. So our faith like unbending iron. So when we go through trials, we'd be anchored into the very truths of God and we would be unwavering. And if that's going to happen, then we need to know, we need to memorize, and we need to meditate on God's word. The Bible is one of the primary means that God strengthens us, that he gives us grace, that he gives us enduring grace. 
So the question we need to ask on a regular basis is, am I in the Word? And how can I spend more time in God's Word? It would be foolish for a soldier to enter into battle without proper armor and training. How much more foolish is it to think that we can live the Christian life without the strengthening of God's Word? Just think about that. Maybe you're military. Maybe you know. We go through lots of training all the time. So on that day, when it comes, we're ready. We know what to do. And we're told in the Christian life, trials are coming every day. And so if we're going to respond, if we're going to endure, if we're going to live the obedient Christian life, then we ought to be in God's word where God is pouring forth grace into our life at every moment. God's word is an invitation to grace. His word is a treasure chest of grace. Every time you open it, grace is coming. That's why notice every letter of Paul's grace to you. And when he ends the letter, grace be with you. He's literally saying when you open up this Bible and when you read these letters that he's writing you, you're receiving grace. And he's saying when you now put the letter down and you walk away, grace will be with you. God's word is the primary means in which we constantly receive grace from God. Now I know talking about trials and suffering, enduring grace, gets heavy. I realize that. But Job is heavy. And, and it's these big, heavy truths that keep us in the faith. But not everything is about trials and not everything is about suffering. In fact, we're told those things come to an end. In fact, in Job 42, they come to an end, right? And it's like they all live happily ever after. Because why? Because hope is coming. Hope comes. Look at verse 10. We're told in verse 10 that God restores to Job all the sufferings or all the blessings that he had prior to suffering. He restores to him. And so three things I just want to point out there. Number one, uh, the blessings came after perseverance. Like, like We can't forget the order here. God didn't give Job a bunch of stuff, and then Job cries out, I knew you were good. Like that's, that's the way we want it. Give me a bunch of stuff, and I will testify to you everywhere that I'm at, God is good. Rather, God gives his speeches. Job is still sitting on the ash heap in sores outside the city, ignored by his friends and family. But he encounters God and he says, God is good. And his soul comes to rest. And it's at that moment that then God begins to reverse his situation and God blesses him. Job didn't earn these rewards. They're grace. Just remember James 5.11 God gives mercies and he gives compassion. Not only does God's grace sustain Job, but it continues to be with Job even after the trials. The grace that saves us, strengthens us, and also blesses us. Number two, you have to see suffering is, not, suffering is the journey, it's not the destination. It's the journey, not the destination. God's goal and purpose in our salvation is not that we would suffer for all of eternity. Do you know that? Sometimes we think that. Sometimes we get fixated on that. But Job is given, but the suffering and trials are limited to this life. 
If you remember Job 38, do you remember what God said about the sun? The rising of the sun and the setting of the sun is a regular reminder that one day all darkness, all sin, all trials, and all suffering and all evil will be shaken out of this world. So every day the sun rises, you're reminded that that evil is coming to an end. Hope is coming. Number three, we see that blessings are extravagant. In verse 10, Job is given twice as much as he had before. His riches are so great that he gives his daughters an inheritance. In the beginning, we see that Job was a wealthy man, possibly the greatest, wealthiest man in all the world. It's almost as if he's like Elon Musk and now his bank account doubled. He just has a whole lot more. It's just extravagant, extravagant, extravagant riches. Now, I I think there's a lot of reasons we have Job 42 and it's given to us the way it is. I don't think that the blessings in Job are are meant to be seen as merely physical riches. I think they speak of the more extravagant blessings and grace that God will bestow upon us for all of eternity. I think think they, they show us that Job's justified. That God has been with Job, and Job is a believer. So there, there is a physical picture, because if Job had died at that moment, we wouldn't know. So the blessings come on earth so that we get to see God's extravagant riches given to the believer. But I think they're more connected to eternity than necessarily here on earth. After all, this is what Ephesians 2, 7 says, just in case you forgot. This is one of my favorite verses, uh, so it's important that you know that. Um, it is. It'll be a test. Uh, but Ephesians 2, 7, it says that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So what this verse says is for all of eternity, God promises to satisfy you with unending grace. All of eternity, grace never, ever stops coming into your life. Um, another way to say that is what Romans 8, 16 and 17 says. Notice this. We're not even going to, I encourage you to come back and think about this passage more, but just notice what it says. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now we could say a lot about what it says, suffering and everything, but... Notice what it says. If you believed in Jesus, then you're an heir with Christ. All that Christ has, he shares with you. His riches, his mercies, his rule, his power, and his authority, all his possessions, everything is yours in Christ. Because all that the Father has is the Son's, and that we are now heirs with Christ. All that the Father has belongs to Jesus and the church. No one will ever get to se- no one will ever get to heaven and to say it wasn't worth it. No one's going to get to heaven and say my sufferings outweigh God's riches. In fact, in light of all the extravagant riches that God promises to pour on us in Christ, Paul refers in Corinthians to the trials in this life as light and momentary afflictions. Now, just to remind you, Paul was beaten, he was stoned, he was afflicted. About everything that can happen to someone, he went through, and he says, light and momentary. 
compared to the unsurpassing riches of Christ that are ours. So know this, Jesus is coming, and when he comes, Revelation 21.4, every tear will be wiped away. Every tear. And you will sit with him on his throne with unending joy. Isn't that amazing? That's the hope of the Christian life. Trials now, hope then. Absolute joy with God in heaven. So we've seen that the Christian life is about trials. And we've seen that God's grace is extravagant and sufficient to not only save us, to sustain us. But how does this book point us to the gospel? How does this book show us our need for Jesus? Now, there's, there's many ways we could show this, but what I want to show is that Job is a pattern of our Savior. So he's a picture for a believer, but he's a pattern of our Savior. The life of Job only makes sense as it points, it, as it points to a far greater and righteous man. I want you to think about this. Job prepares us for and points us to Jesus. The book of Job begins with, with again, describing Job's righteousness and his great wealth. He loses everything, and at the end of the book, he's, he's in a sense glorified, right? It begins in glory, and we go through this great trial and suffering, and then it ends in glory. So we have glory, suffering, glory. That's the pattern in the book of Job. Let me read to you Philippians 2, 6 through 11. See if you can see the pattern. Verse 6, talking about Jesus. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly bestowed on him exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the pattern? Jesus begins in glory. That's what he emptied himself. So he's in glory. Then he empties himself and he comes into earth as a man. So in a sense, he sets aside his glory he comes and he, he humbles himself to the point of death. And, and, and what kind of death? Death on a cross. So intense suffering. And then what does verse 9 says? What happens after his intense suffering? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So it goes from glory to intense suffering to what? To glory. You see, Job is, Job is hard to read because when we read about him, we see a man who suffered not because of his own sin. He's this righteous, suffering person. And like Job, when we suffer, we want to cry out, How is this fair? Why? But where Job is silent, the gospel speaks loud and clear. You see, Jesus is far more righteous than Job. And he suffered not because of his sins, but because of your sins and my sin. And it's only through his suffering that we are forgiven 
and that we can have a relationship with God. Suffering is the very special means in which God uses to accomplish grand purposes like our salvation, the testifying of his beauty and glory, and the glorifying of Jesus and all who believe in him. Suffering accomplishes that. Many of the tensions that we feel in the book of Job, they're answered and they're satisfied in the cross of Jesus. So when we're in the book of Job and we say, how is it God would let a righteous man suffer? What good can come out of that? Ultimately, he points us to a far greater, much more righteous person who came and we see that there is only hope in the world because of the suffering of Jesus. Which tells us that when we go through our trials and God gives, gives us grace to sustain us, it's for the purpose that not only that God would be exalted, not only is it for our purpose that we'd be conformed to his image, but that God's glory would be made known in this world and more and more people would come to know him. God accomplishes his purposes through suffering. Many fairy tales end with the line, and they all lived happily ever after. And as humans, we, we desire hope. We desire that everything will work out. I think that's why fairy tales do it. We, we all have this yearning, this innate desire within our soul that we want all things to work out. We want to know sin will be judged, wrongs will be righted, and evil will be done away with. We come to the book of Job and we come to the gospel of Jesus, it teaches us that for all those who trust in Jesus, one day they will live happily ever after in God's kingdom, in his presence for all of eternity. And as you wait for that day, know this, God's grace is abundantly sufficient for you to live the Christian life to the end. Abundantly sufficient. Let me pray. Father, we, we see in the book of Job, we see in your Gospels that suffering is not something outside of your control. And that while you understand the ins and outs of it perfectly, we do not. And yet in your word, we see your power, your might, your supremacy, your rule, your grace, your mercies. And we are told over and over, and we are given pictures and stories over and over throughout your word of how you use suffering to accomplish grand purposes. And so, Father, I pray. I pray that we would know these truths so that when trials come in our way, we would not think, that you have abandoned us, but that we would know your presence is with us, strengthening us, enduring us, satisfying us, that we would run the race and you would be glorified as our heart, as our faith is purified and we are made more into your image so that not only we, but others would know you and love you, God. God, I pray that we would be a church that knows your word and loves your word and we'd be in your word so constantly we would be receiving the very grace that you promise us. So we'd be prepared and equipped to endure the trials that you bring knowing they're not your wrath and vengeance upon us. Rather, like a good father, 
you discipline us, that there would be a harvest of righteousness that would come. And Lord, I pray that where there is mystery and where we do not understand how and why, that your grace and your character would give us peace in our heart and our soul, that we would rest in you, that we'd be reminded of the truth of the gospel, that your son Jesus, through suffering, has conquered sin, conquered death, and conquered Satan, and has provided hope for all the world. And that we know that you are using the trials in this world and in our life to accomplish your purposes. God, give us grace. May we run the race that you have given us. In your name, Jesus, amen.